The White House rejecting a World Trade Organization ruling and vowing to keep a set of Trump-era tariffs in place. The Biden administration on the defense after giving $200 million to a company with ties to Beijing. Celebrations kicking off for International Human Rights Day. Groups marking the occasion with protests in Chicago and in Germany. Fever clinics in the city of Beijing seeing 16 times more patients this week than last. We zoom in on the city as it lessens some of its zero COVID-19 rules. And Jimmy Lai set to spend more than five years in prison, but did fraud put the Hong Kong tycoon behind bars or a violation of press freedom? Welcome to China in Focus. I'm Tiffany Meyer. Washington says it strongly rejects the World Trade Organization's ruling against certain Trump-era tariffs and vows to keep the penalties in place, which target steel and aluminum. The statement comes after China, Norway, Switzerland and Turkey brought cases about the issue to the WTO. The organization ruled that former President Trump's measures violated global trading rules. It also recommended that the U.S. bring them into conformity. In its explanation, the WTO said it was not persuaded by Washington's justification for the tariffs. Trump imposed 25% tariffs on steel imports and 10% on aluminum in 2018. The action fell under a 1962 act, allowing the president to restrict imports if they pose a national security threat. Assistant U.S. Trade Representative Adam Hodge commented on the WTO's ruling. He said the Biden administration strongly rejected the organization's, quote, flawed interpretation and conclusions, adding that Washington has no plans to remove the tariffs. He went on to say that the WTO has no authority to second-guess how its members respond to issues that threaten their security, and that it has proven ineffective at stopping severe and persistent non-market access capacity from China and others something he called an existential threat to market-oriented steel and aluminum sectors and a threat to U.S. national security. The U.S. Steel Manufacturers Association supported Washington's refusal to accept the WTO ruling, citing problems like global access steel capacity and market-distorting behavior. Experts say the measures counter the Chinese regime and help maintain fair trade principles. The Biden administration is defending a $200 million grant given to an electric vehicle battery maker with deep ties to Beijing. That's according to Fox News. Texas-based manufacturer Microvast received the grant. The funds came from the $1 trillion infrastructure package President Biden signed into law in November 2021. It was part of a program meant to boost battery manufacturing in the U.S., but China seems to be taking a bigger piece of the pie. Microvast has factories in the U.S., China, and Germany. According to a Securities and Exchange Commission filing last month, nearly 70% of Microvast's revenue was generated in China, compared to a mere 3% from the U.S. Microvast also stated that the Chinese regime exerts substantial influence over its business activities and may intervene at any time and with no notice. Top Republican on the Energy and National Resources Committee, Senator John Barrasso, wrote a letter to Energy Secretary Jennifer Granholm expressing his concerns. Barrasso said that Microvast is joined at the hip with China 
and that the award money is demonstrably antithetical. In a statement to Fox News, a U.S. Energy Department spokesperson reiterated that Microvest is an American battery company, explaining that the grant will allow Microvest to build a separator production plant here at home. Saturday marked the beginning of a year-long United Nations campaign. Its aim to promote the 75th anniversary of the Universal Declaration of Human Rights. A group celebrated International Human Rights Day with a protest in downtown Chicago. Let's take a look. Say no to CCP! Say no to CCP! On Saturday afternoon, a group chanting anti-Chinese Communist Party, or CCP, slogans marched through Chicago's Magnificent Mile. Ethan came from the city of Shenzhen in China a few months ago. He says he is not afraid of speaking up against the CCP. If you criticize the CCP or the party leader, you will be arrested, interrogated and censored. I have been treated this way in China. I have a profound understanding of the poison of totalitarian rule and the control of individual thought. I have personal experience, but I am not afraid even if they arrest me when I return to China. We need people to stand up. We need warriors. Alan Chan used to live in Hong Kong, where he experienced the CCP's suppression of anti-extradition law protests in 2019. He says human beings need the right to live with dignity. In case of China, it's not only about making a living or, or um, some draconian policy. Or in the case of Hong Kong, it's not only about um, the freedom of speech. Uh, it's about this political repression. It's more about human dignity. It's about living as a human being. And these are our rights and it should not be taken away from us. The protesters included people from mainland China, Hong Kong, Taiwan, Tibet and Chicago. The protests briefly stopped outside an Apple store. That was to condemn Apple supplier Foxconn's inhumane treatment of employees in Zhengzhou, China during the COVID lockdown. The rally concluded outside the Chinese consulate. Reporting by Angela Moy, NTD News, Chicago. And another rally promoting human rights in China, this time in the German city of Nuremberg. The city is known as the hub of human rights. That's because the famous Nuremberg trials against the Nazis after the Second World War were held there. Here's the story. Past and present converged in the heart of Nuremberg. Here, human rights defenders raised their voices against the decades-long persecution of Falun Gong. The meditation practice, also known as Falun Dafa, has been brutally suppressed by the Chinese communist regime. Dressed in blue uniforms, Falun Gong practitioners formed a marching band. Their music conveyed holiday wishes and the principles they hold fast to, truthfulness, compassion and forbearance. Many of them were direct victims of the CCP's campaign of persecution. One of them recalled how the police forced her to renounce her faith using dehumanizing tactics. For 13 days, I was forced to remain standing and not allowed to sleep. Because of my resistance, they force-fed me. They inserted a tube into my nose. I didn't cooperate. Then they inserted a tube into my lungs. This caused me to cough and spit up blood for over a month. Zhao says she has twice sued Jiang Zemin. The former party leader initiated the nationwide persecution of Falun Gong in 1999. He recently died of leukemia and multiple organ failure. Other faith groups in China are under similar pressure. 
Helga Maul cited an example pointing to the Tibetan flag on her hat. If you show that and we show that at our protest and at our vigil, if you show that in Tibet, um, it's uh, considered a political offense and you go to work camp or to prison for at least 10 years just for this. Their stories evoke the history of Nuremberg, once a center for Nazi propaganda. However, between 1945 and 1946, Nazi leaders stood trial for their crimes in the courtroom of Nuremberg's Palace of Justice. The Nuremberg trials established international criminal law, making all people, even heads of state, accountable for crimes against humanity. I address those who are involved in the persecutions, whether it's against Falun Gong or the Uyghurs, they should stop doing that because they will be held accountable for their deeds. The rally ended with a peaceful candlelight vigil appealing for justice in the historic city. NTD News, Nuremberg, Germany. A high-level U.S. delegation is in China. Two senior U.S. officials spoke with China's vice foreign minister on Sunday and Monday. They are Daniel Crittenbrink, Assistant Secretary of State for East Asian Affairs, and Laura Rosenberger, Senior Director for China Affairs of the White House National Security Council. The visit is in preparation for Secretary of State Antony Blinken's first visit to China early next year, which aims to keep ties between the U.S. and China on course. But the two countries still have ongoing disagreements, including about Taiwan and over U.S. sanctions against several Chinese officials. China slammed Washington the same day the delegation was in the country, saying the U.S. sanctions over its alleged abuses in Tibet were, quote, a gross interference in China's internal affairs. The comment came after the U.S. announced sanctions on Friday, targeting some Chinese Communist Party officials. Two of them are from Tibet. Beijing has been accused of using harsh policies to quell ethnic dissent and control religious activities in the region. The sanction list also includes a CCP official in connection with the persecution of Falun Gong. The U.S. delegation also plans to visit South Korea and Japan to consult on a range of regional issues. China is expected to be on the agenda. China loosened restrictions on the transportation of goods on Saturday. It's an early step towards shifting away from its zero COVID-19 policy. and aims to ensure citizens have adequate access to medicines. But the streets in Beijing still remain largely empty. Let's take a look. China's dismantlement of its zero COVID policy may be gathering pace, but the move appears to be being met with caution by residents such as this 18-year-old student, surnamed Tan. I'm really afraid of being infected because the number of infected people is growing gradually in Beijing. But I must come out and run some errands today. I've been delaying going outside for three weeks due to COVID. After widespread protests, Chinese authorities switched course from the zero-COVID policy. Whilst that has been welcomed by a weary public, concerns have also been stoked that infections could spike. With less testing now required and those with mild to no symptoms allowed to quarantine at home, the focus has shifted to ensuring adequate provisions of medicines and shoring up the country's healthcare system. 
On Saturday, China said it would stop checking truck drivers and ship crew transporting goods domestically for COVID-19. That removes a key bottleneck from a supply chain that had been thrown into disarray earlier this year. By requirements for those involved in goods transportation to show negative COVID test results or health codes at checkpoints. Authorities said removing those curbs was aimed at ensuring the smooth supply of medicines and items such as antigen kits. Long queues have formed at pharmacies in many Chinese cities by people looking to buy cough medicines, flu drugs and masks. The city of Beijing's health commission reported that the number of patients with flu-like symptoms in the past week was more than six times higher than two weeks earlier. And on Sunday, 16 times more patients visited fever clinics in the city than in the previous week. Pro-democracy Hong Kong tycoon Jimmy Lai was sentenced on Saturday to more than five years in prison for fraud. But human rights activists are calling it a violation of press freedom in the city. Let's zoom in. Pro-democracy Hong Kong media tycoon Jimmy Lai was sentenced on Saturday to five years and nine months in prison. Lai is one of Hong Kong's most prominent China critics. He was convicted of violating a lease contract for the headquarters of a liberal newspaper he used to run. The 75-year-old was found guilty for renting out offices at the headquarters of his newspaper, Apple Daily. Prosecutors said the offices were rented to Lai's own consultancy firm, but that the newspaper's lease conditions only allowed use of the space for publishing newspapers and magazines. Another defendant, Wang Wai Kyung, an executive who worked for Lai, was jailed for 21 months. The judge said Lai's prosecution wasn't equivalent to an attack on press freedom. But a former pro-democracy lawmaker in Hong Kong and a senior fellow at the Harvard Kennedy School described it as a political prosecution. Western governments, including the United States, have expressed concern about Lai's plight. They have condemned what they call a broader deterioration in protection for human rights and fundamental freedoms in the city. That's under Hong Kong's national security law, imposed by Beijing. Britain returned Hong Kong to Chinese rule in 1997. At the time, the city was promised freedoms under a one-country, two-systems policy, meaning Hong Kong would be governed separately from the rest of China. But the Chinese Communist Party has since eroded that distinction. Over the past two decades, Beijing has reshaped Hong Kong, cracking down on protests, silencing dissent, integrating party loyalty into its education system, and revamping election laws to remove opposition. Japan needs to increase its military spending as the threat from China and North Korea continues to grow. That's according to a senior member of Japan's ruling Liberal Democratic Party. He visited Taiwan over the weekend. Japan has walked the path of peace since the war and will continue to do so. However, just reciting the word peace is not enough for our peace to be protected. We want to make potential aggressors think they should quit. In order to do that, what is important is to show clearly that we have sufficient prowess. Hagiura pointed to China's massive increase in military spending, as well as North Korean missile tests, as reasons for Japan to up its defense budget. Also during the meeting, Taiwan President Tsai Ing-wen pledged to deepen security cooperation with Japan. Taiwan and Japan do not have formal diplomatic ties, but they have close unofficial relations and both share concerns about Beijing. The communist regime has increased military activities near the two. China staged military drills near Taiwan in August. 
The action responded to a visit to Taipei by outgoing U.S. House Speaker Nancy Pelosi. As part of the exercises, Beijing launched five missiles into the sea within Japan's exclusive economic zone. Japan is host to major U.S. military bases, including in Okinawa, a short flight from Taiwan. That base would prove crucial for U.S. support in the case of a Chinese attack. Next, we turn to the U.S.-China rivalry in Africa. The dispute is at the forefront of regional relations, ahead of this week's U.S.-Africa Leader Summit. On Monday, leaders from the continent touched down at an airbase outside Washington, D.C. During the event, President Joe Biden will announce support for the African Union's permanent membership and the Group of 20 Forum, or G20. That move comes as China deepens its political and economic involvement on the continent. After surpassing the U.S. as Africa's largest trade partner in 2009, China continues to expand its influence on the continent through trade, infrastructure investments and loans. Many African countries have received huge sums from Beijing over the past decade. Because of it, most African countries vote in favor of Beijing when bills in the United Nations seek to condemn China's human rights violations. In November, U.S. Secretary of State Antony Blinken said Washington would have to do things differently to help Africa with its infrastructure needs. He said it was time to stop treating the continent as a subject of geopolitics rather than a major player on its own. Coming up, recent protests across China are calming with the lessening of the country's draconian virus restrictions. But Bradley Thayer says it's not the end and something even bigger may still happen. Many different scenarios that we can envision that would lead to uh, the end of uh, uh, the Chinese regime and one would hope a very different uh, China that respects human rights uh, of its people. Bradley Thayer is the founding member of the Committee on the Present Danger China and a co-author of the book Understanding the China Threat. More on that in just a minute here on China in Focus. Welcome back to China in Focus. I'm Tiffany Meyer. China's zero COVID-19 policy softening. At the same time, the country is slowly reopening. Protests have calmed, at least for now. But what should we expect in the coming months? We spoke to Bradley Thayer, co-author of the book Understanding the China Threat, to find out more. So we've been seeing all these protests across China, about over 20 provinces in all places. And it seems in some ways authorities are listening. They are lessening some of the COVID restrictions. So what do we make of this? Are authorities actually bowing down to the protesters or what can we make of this? Well, they certainly have lessened, um, at least nominally, some of the zero COVID policies. It's clear that they haven't gotten rid of all of them. but. Equally, the intent is to remove some of the gasoline from the fire of the protests. So we should expect that the uh, Chinese Communist Party vacillates in that degree, using that as sometimes lessening, sometimes tightening uh, as um, we move ahead, of course, in the weeks and months to come. But equally, Tiffany, we should anticipate that these protests are not done, uh, that the protests have shown their strength 
and the animus directed against zero COVID, but also the Chinese Communist Party and Xi Jinping's rule. And so we can expect that some other exogenous event, uh, it might be economic downturn, or it might be um, an international event, or it might be something within the Chinese Communist Party brings the protesters out again uh, in, in full force. Some experts are saying, you know, in China, there's, say, maybe certain numbers of vaccinations and then they've been locked. The population has been locked up for so long. Now that you have this lessening, it's heading into winter when, you know, virologists say that's when the infections are most easily spread. If we see a huge surge in cases, are we going to see China just going back to the lockdowns? As individuals come out as these lessen, we will expect COVID rates to rise and that will generate pressure uh, to reduce uh, them again. But we need to recognize as well that the zero COVID policy was not principally about COVID. It was about ensuring the power of the Chinese Communist Party and ensuring that um, control over the Chinese population could serve the party's ends first and foremost before any epidemiological concern uh, was met. And Bradley, you mentioned the part about control, how this isn't actually about the virus, it's about control. So with these protests and the lessening of the restrictions, are we seeing a weakening in terms of the Chinese Communist regime and Xi Jinping's ruling, or what, what are we seeing here? Well, we're certainly seeing a challenge to it. And this has the potential uh, to serve as a major movement against the party and against Xi Jinping's rule. But uh, there are two arguments against that. One would be, first, he would not have traveled to Saudi Arabia if he were worried about his position. So the fact that he did travel uh, is an indication that he does not anticipate a substantial challenge to his uh, government. Secondly, and more fundamentally, as you well know, China is the surveillance state. So um, the effectiveness of their ability to identify the protesters and punish them, if you will, kind of a quiet Tiananmen, going after individuals, using social credit scores, using other, um, if you will, not immediately violent steps as the People's Liberation Army took in Tiananmen Square in June of 1989, but nonetheless very effective at if you will, decapitating this movement, which is what they want to do. Find the leaders, find how they communicated, and plug the gaps in that communication and punish the leaders uh, is what they want to do. So the formidable strength of the Chinese surveillance state um, guards against uh, or cautions us to anticipate it's going to be difficult, at least in the near term, uh, to generate a substantial challenge to uh, to Xi Jinping's rule. And on that note, is that a trade-off the Chinese people are willing to accept? I think you mentioned, right, Xi Jinping is in Saudi Arabia. He's not really afraid of getting toppled. So some are saying the protests could lead to that. What would it take to really topple the regime? What's your take? Well, there are several ways that could happen. We could think of many different scenarios. One would be his death, his, uh, his incapacitation. Uh, as well, um, that would be a, a serious stabilizer that would lead to really a challenge uh, for leadership on the Chinese Communist Party. It would be if civil society continues to grow in China, so that you do have an alternative to the Chinese Communist Party. 
It would be if the Great Firewall is torn down effectively uh, so that the Chinese are able to access the global Internet uh, and in, uh, identify um, essentially the world as it's happening rather than going through essentially that very powerful filter. For example, defeat in a war uh, or major economic downturn or another pandemic, uh, for example, or we could think of processes from above like the growth of democracy and respect for human rights in China that allowed the Chinese people to recognize that they're tired of the regime, they don't want the Chinese regime anymore. So many different scenarios that we can envision that would lead to uh, the end of uh, uh, the Chinese regime and one would hope a very different uh, China that respects human rights uh, of its people. That's all for today's China in Focus. I'm Tiffany Meyer. If you have any feedback on the show or have something you'd like to see us cover, send us an email at chinainfocus at ntd.com. We'd love to hear from you. Thanks for watching. See you tomorrow.